Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 286, recorded February 2nd, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 110. Security Now is brought to you by MailRoute, a secure hosted service that filters viruses and spam for companies of any size. For 10% off your new account, visit MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show that helps you stay safe online. And joining us as usual, the star of our show, Mr. Security, the man behind GRC.com, Steve Gibson. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Tom, great to be with you this week while Leo is off wherever he is. That's right. If you were expecting to see Leo Laporte, I'm sorry for the shock. Or hear Leo Laporte, Or I guess. hear Leo Laporte if you're on the <laughs> audio version. Or read Leo Laporte if you're reading the transcript. I don't know if I read different than Leo. Uh, yeah, I don't think I took that into account, actually, back in the day when yeah. I was writing the code that creates the transcripts. Uh, but we've got some uh, some good stuff uh, to get to today. Uh, some some security flaws getting handled, I hope. As always, and this is a Q&A episode, so we've got uh, questions from our listeners and comments and feedback in general. So we'll, uh, we'll go through that and have a good podcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Q&A. I haven't done a Q&A with you before, and uh, as I was mentioning before the show, it's it's one of the the parts of the show where you find the unexpected, uh, when you get some of the most valuable tidbits, I think. Oh, yeah, and and our listeners, we you know, I have a, a feedback uh, location, grc.com slash feedback, where we remind people they can drop their comments and questions and thoughts, and very often, in some cases, they're they're correcting something that I have said or asking a great question for you know an issue that I didn't highlight strongly enough in a prior podcast. So, just uh, lots of good stuff. Uh, yeah, I love that that sort of uh, hive mind that you can take advantage of with the with the with crowdsourcing and people pointing out. Yeah, you know, some people have more tact than others on it, but but the end result is you, you learn a lot more because you take advantage of everybody's specialties. Well, and when you've been out, you know, in front of uh, an audience as, you know, who are doing target practice for a while, you, mm-hmm. your your skin gets thick and you don't take anything personally. Right. So, you just you just pay attention to the information. Just take the take the value where you can find it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I learned that in journalism school uh, the first time I started doing reports and got ripped to shreds by the editor. I learned very quickly. Don't listen to how he says it. Just listen to what he's saying. Take that and learn from it. Exactly. Just say thank you very much yeah. for your input. But we so, always uh, we always try to say things in a very nice and acceptable manner. <laughs> like, why not? So Let's, we've got um, a couple updates, uh, security-wise, and a bunch of news. Uh, the big news since last week is that a new flaw has been found in IE. Um, Microsoft has about five other problems that they've been tracking since the beginning of the year, which we ought to be fixing, um, hopefully before long. Um, this one is, is something that most users 
of Windows won't need to be concerned with if they're not using IE. It's in the the so-called MHTML module of Windows, which actually is not a formal part of Internet Explorer. This is that feature which only IE has, which allows you to save an entire web page with all of the other assets of the page as a single file and you know it it, it creates that that um um htm is that what no i'm sorry the, the mht file it is the so-called ie archive and what someone discovered and there is proof of concept code now in the public and exploits are expected to be happening before long someone discovered that it would that there was a mistake in the way this mhtml module was was rendering pages that were stored in this format when they were redisplayed such that you could exploit scripting in this stored archive in order to get arbitrary malicious code to execute so so microsoft is working on a fix but first of all anyone using um another browser I'm not sure about Opera though, because Opera also supports the, this this compressed format. But I know that Firefox and and Chrome, Firefox requires a plugin and has a different format. Chrome doesn't support it at all. Safari doesn't support it at all. So other non IE users are almost certainly safe. Microsoft does have one of their little fix it buttons, which can be deployed. And and frankly, I, if anyone's concerned about this at all, it's easy to use this fix it, and there's almost no side effects, meaning that there isn't really a downside. What what you're doing is you're turning off scripting support in these MHT files, these IE archives, and it's hard to imagine that you know when you've like you you want to save the whole page with all the stuff in it. It's hard to imagine that disabling scripting when you it, when whenever it is you get around to looking at it again would be much of a problem so so this means that when when you save one of those pages as an archive uh right. it won't execute it when you view it later later Cor- correct so it, it won't execute the script right the, uh, any javascript that you saved along with that i think so it doesn't option- affect the saving it affects the viewing correct and and in ie it's that it's that option that IE has always had. They added this in in IE five, which is save web page complete. I think is what it actually says in the drop down box. And it's, I mean, I've used it in the past. It's kind of handy to like save. You know, if if you're you've got a page, you really want it, you know, to 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 keep it not just the HTML but all the other pieces of it. It bundles them all together. In fact, MHTML stands for MIME HTML. So it uses a, you know, MIME is the multi-part extension of email. So where, where, where you're able with, with, with MIME to, to uh, 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 essentially attach different types of objects, binaries and pictures and, and code and so forth into an email. So this is MIME HTML, which is, it's a non-standard format. This is not part of, you know, any larger web standard. This is just IE. Uh, which has created this. What users can do is go to support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 
250-1696. So again, that's support.microsoft.com slash KB slash 250-1696. You'll find there one of those little one-click fix-it buttons that Microsoft is doing now, um, which what it does is it adds some lines to the registry to disable scripting for files with this MHT file extension. That is, it, it, it disables script in the, the script handlers, JavaScript, for those documents. And it does, it does nothing else. So it's, a, it's an innocuous, worthwhile fix. If I, I, I would say if you're a person who is l- more likely to encounter malicious stuff, if, you're, you know, if you're, your habit is to be browsing around out on the Internet, uh, maybe in some shady areas... It's not clear how soon Microsoft's going to fix this. You know, you know when that's going to happen. We are, um, what are we? We're we're February second, so we're not yet at the second Tuesday of February. So we don't have perhaps too long to wait. Um, uh, of course, last you know yesterday um, Tuesday was February first, so the second Tuesday of February will be the eighth which is as, as soon as it could possibly come, maybe Microsoft will have it fixed by then, although that's a short window. This just happened in this last week. So it, we, this may not be time for them to fix it. We may be waiting till March, or they may, may they have said they may push out an, an out-of-cycle update if, if uh, this thing goes exploit crazy in the wild. So um, it's, the way it's exploited is there is a way that a user can simply visit a website which uses cross-site scripting in order to to exploit this MHT problem without a user having to store and view something. So it's not as if it's necessary for you to to store a, a bad page and then play it back and get zapped. It's not it's, side-loading an MHTML document itself. It's, it's just exploiting the, the functionality. Well, it's it's that the page can in the 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 page that that you go to and load can say to, to your browser, load this little snippet of MHT uh, okay. file, and then use the JavaScript in order to execute that and exploit it. So, so it is it is still a one click deal. It's where you visit something malicious on the web and you're toast. So, I mean, my feeling is. If if you're concerned, if you're or first of all, only if you're using IE, bother with this because if you're already on Firefox or Chrome uh, or probably Opera, then uh, you're for sure you have nothing to worry about. And Microsoft, I'm sure. I mean, this is this is there is exploit code out. They're aware of it. They're working on it. So with any luck, this thing will be fixed pretty quickly. Well, and if you're running NoScript, presumably that protects you as well, right? Exactly, because it does require scripting in order to invoke this problem. So if, exactly, but but if you're all, if you're running no script, then you're on Firefox, so you're safe anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of a, a catch, <laughs> catch, catch, catch 22 gotta, there. I, I use Firefox to save web pages complete anyway because it just saves them as HTML and then puts all the assets in a folder, which I find is much more convenient for being able to look at it again in whatever browser I'm using, whereas the MHTML is not handled by all browsers. Right. So what Firefox does is it saves the page and it converts the web links into relative folder references. So it pulls it out of a folder located right underneath where it saved the page. 
and and so so you're able to to re, as you said redisplay the page not having to have an internet connection. It's a it's a great way to cache pages as well. Yeah. Speaking of Opera, Opera now has a new version. Yes, um, they had eleven. Actually, it hasn't been out for long when uh, a, a problem was found that caused them to do eleven point oh one, which is where they are now. Um, opera doesn't have a huge market share, but I know that we've got listeners who really like Opera. They just they've gotten used to it. They like the features that are unique to Opera. So I wanted to advise them that first of all that 11.01 has happened. So make sure that that's what they're running. That one fixes a bunch of cosmetic UI problems, a handful of minor security issues, and one worrisome remote code execution vulnerability. Um, in Microsoft's handling of the the select element in HTML forms, if you if you loaded a web page that had really long um, uh, input in the forms, and and you you could use script in order to load the input, which is what a malicious page would do. That was that there was an integer truncation problem that would get overwritten, and you know we know the rest. Then the bad guys got control of of your machine. The problem is that Security Focus is also reporting another integer overflow problem in the option, the form option element that still exists in this latest 11.01 release. Um, it's not clear that there's any active exploitation of it. Um, Opera does not have a patch, but they are working on it. Uh, and with any luck, they'll have a zero point. Uh, or a point zero two release that'll fix that one. But I just so I wanted to give Opera users a heads up. First of all, that Opera had recently gone to point zero one, that is version eleven point zero one, and that there is still a, there's a known problem with this one. But I imagine Opera will be getting to it and fixing it quickly. So it's because it's very related to the other one. So there are your security updates. Let's move into the uh, security news. Google today had a uh, a big announcement about. New features in Honeycomb, uh, but we got some uh, some issues with Android's version 2.3, Gingerbread, which a lot of people are very excited to get on their phone. If you're running the, the Nexus S, you actually have it on your phone right now. What's going on with this? Right. What happened is that um, there, there was a known problem with the previous release of Android 2.2 and a data disclosure vulnerability, as it was called, which which allowed a malicious link, essentially, uh, either in email or browsing. It allowed a, a so, so the email link would take you to a web page that, that was configured to exploit a problem in the browser that would give this malicious uh, uh, site access to your device's SD memory card. And that might contain financial information, photos, uh, anything you store on there. Yeah. Any yes, essentially they got all they had access to all the files on the SD memory card. So Google fixed it and said, "Oh, you know, ta-da! Here's Gingerbread version 2.3." Well, a um, an associate professor at North Carolina State University recently informed Google that he had found a way around their fix in this most recently released version 2.3. So essentially this thing has the same problem. 
Uh, Google is aware of it. They have verified it, um, and they're moving to fix it. Um, the only thing users can do is you could disable JavaScript. That's one course of action because, as, as I mean, all, all of our listeners, Tom, are used, used to my saying, well, you know, if you disable JavaScript, that solves the problem because, of course, scripting is just such yeah. a problem uh, from a security standpoint. So here, even over in Android, disabling JavaScript or using a different web browser. Instead of using the default web browser, use one of the alternatives that doesn't have the problem. I'm sure Google will get this fixed and pushed out quickly, but there is a, a known vulnerability in Gingerbread that they thought had been fixed. Um, but turns out there's a way to work around that. As with any time, anytime you're using JavaScript, be extra careful about where you're clicking. <laughs> exactly. Um, and SourceForge, the major open source archive and project management site. Oh, yeah. Was, was hacked. I heard about it. this. This is horrible because SourceForge, uh, if people don't know, is a great place to find open source software. I mean, if you're ever looking for a free version of anything, if you have an idea of a utility that you wanted, go search SourceForge because chances are, uh, like Google code, uh, one of those two places has somebody who's been working on something. Uh, but you, you, you may be a member of SourceForge uh, if you if you're a developer, if you're uploading things, and uh, and and your data may have gotten hacked here. Well, yes, and that's the question. There are two hundred and thirty thousand open source projects that are being managed over at SourceForge, and what they what what happened was they discovered that somehow a malicious SSH, a secure shell daemon, had gotten into their servers. And it, it had been maliciously modified to perform password capture of anyone logging into SourceForge over SSH. So they immediately blocked all logins and they just, they just shut down login because they, they could no longer trust the, um, the, in, the integrity. They sent email to everyone who had a password telling them to please change their passwords after expunging this this um, known malicious SSH daemon from the servers. And now they're in the process of going back through and performing some sort of audit of the, the code base. Because, I mean, as, as you said, a huge number of, of high-integrity, highly used open-source projects are being managed there and... The question is, and many people have posed the question, did the bad guys use the password capture to give them access to any major open source projects and modify the source code maliciously so that what was once good source code is now, you know, it's got some hidden back doors in it. And that's the question that these guys need to answer. So um, we don't really know how bad it is. I'm hoping that they're actually able to perform an audit. Um, you know, bad guys have a way of, especially bad guys who know what they're doing, of covering up their own tracks. And, for example, changing modification dates and erasing modification logs and so forth in order to not be found. So it is scary for some a big major site like this to have, um, to have found themselves with a backdoor that you know was in active use at the time that uh, they encountered it. Now, can they crowdsource the analysis, the code audit, and ask people to kind of pitch in and, and, and look for things? Or, or is that untrustworthy in this case? 
That yeah, that's the problem. Is uh, the, the only way I could see they could do it. They could run maybe um, a source compare versus offline backups. See whether anything has changed that that doesn't look like it's changed, and that would allow them to find it because you know they probably have offline backups that, that would inherently have been unavailable to a bad guy. So if they were to to do a mass comparison of files that showed that they had not been changed to actually see if they had been changed, then I, I would think that's partly probably what one of the things that they're doing. Quite quite a mess. I mean, you can still go and download source uh, source code from, from SourceForge. You can download uh, things from the accounts. But is that safe? Yeah, that's the question. You know, I mean, you're... you're you're always taking a risk when you download anything on the internet, of course, but you've got a little extra risk to frost the cupcake in this case. Well, yes. And for example, you know, we, we heard, our, our listeners heard, there was that rumor uh, toward the end of last year that OpenBSD's crypto library had, had a backdoor installed in it a decade before by the FBI. And, and, and you know, people ran around and and really scrutinized the OpenBSD source code, they, they, that rumor was debunked. It was found that there was, there was nothing bad that happened. And in fact, they did find by, by looking at it so closely, they found some things that they wanted to fix <laughs> because it just, this is code that hadn't been yeah. looked at for, for 10 years. So they said, oh, well, while we're here, we'll fix these other things. Um, so it's, uh, the, you know, people feel very good about source being open because it allows scrutiny um, the, but of course it also requires scrutiny or you're not getting any value from the source code being open. So, um, you know, I, I, I will keep my eyes out for any uh, further news about this. And I hope that, uh, that, you know, maybe the bad guys were discovered this backdoor with the, the SSH daemon was discovered before, um, anyone had had a chance to do anything bad or that the passwords, which were, captured were two minor uh projects hopefully they know which passwords were captured and then they would know where to look yeah, that would which make case that, that would hugely narrow down their search make things a lot simpler yeah all right we are scraping the bottom of the barrel of the ipv4 bucket well wait we're scraping the bottom of the ipv4 barrel it's not a barrel and a bucket at the same time in any case the last two uh freely assignable slash eights were given to apnic and uh, now they're they're down to five, which triggers an interesting rule, right? Well, um, I wanted to just people alarm bells have been going off uh, with people because last week I told everybody about the the uh, Twitter user, which is at IPv4 countdown, and shortly after bringing that to everyone's attention, the countdown really seems to have accelerated. I mean, it, it just went, it just started going, it was like almost every six hours, they would be announcing that another, you know, slash 16 had disappeared and they were all, they were down to, I think we were at, at uh, 32 million IPs and now it's like, or I mean, it's like, it's like, it's almost gone down to nothing. And so I wanted to, to assure people that, that this is there's a little bit of a misnomer to this. This is the the uh, Internet Assigned Numbers Association, the IANA, handing out, as you just said, Tom, to the major registries, the the you know the final remaining big blocks of of otherwise not previously allocated space. The five it, families of the internet. 
Right. This we knew was going to happen early in 2011. This is different than what is expected to happen late in 2011, which is actual exhaustion. So the idea is that, you know, out of the 256 possible, you know, zero to 255, um, you know, uh, first byte of the IP address, there had been a, a big chunk, well, not a big chunk, but but a, a sizable number that had never, ever been given out. And so early this year, the and this is what this countdown has been watching, is the IANA finally essentially relenting and and handing out the remaining, you know, large, never before allocated blocks of the internet space to the registrar to to the to, to these five registries then they during the next 6 or 7 or so months will be handing the, these newly received blocks they just got from the IANA they'll begin doling out chunks of i mean jealously <laughs> and carefully and with minimal waste doling out you know, just what IP blocks they have to, um, they're going to want to conserve their th- this remaining space. So, there, I mean, the, for for several years now, there's been back pressure on people who wanted IP blocks. I remember when I first got on the net uh, a decade ago, you could just say, "Oh yeah, give me 256." I, you know, I want a slash 24 network. You know, you you could get large allocations with no problem. When I moved. GRC over to level three about three years ago, I had to fill out an I, what they called an IP justification form. And, and I was begging for the 16 IPs that I have. Whereas on my two T1s, I've got 64 sitting here. I mean, you know, me, the one that, you know, where we just connected with, with, with Skype. You're I've on a 60- wealth of riches. <laughs> I mean, and I, and it's funny too, because when I, when I, when, when I switched over to, to Cogent from Vario, I, I said to the two tech guys who had gone from Vario to Cogent and so who knew me really well, I said, guys, I really don't need all these. And they said, well, you've had them before. You might as well just still have them. It's like, okay. So they were, you know, they were being very free and loose with them at the time. Right. That is certainly not the case anymore. Now you've got to, you know, beg and plead for what few IPs. Um, you're able to get from an ISP. Um, generally, as long as you're using them, you can keep them. But there still are all kinds of people. I mean, major corporations and networks that are they're hoarding their IPs and don't want to let them go. And of course, the pressure is increasing on them giving them up. So I did want to make sure people understood that what this IPv4 depletion was showing was really only the the obviously visible depletion that's being monitored where the IANA is saying okay we're we've you know peeled off the last of these handed them out to the registries now they will individually hand those out over the next 6 or 7 or 8 months um and and you know I've said on on this podcast many times in the last few uh actually few weeks that we'll be watching this IPv6 drama unfolding. And in fact, we've got a couple interesting questions from our listeners about that, too. Yeah, June 8th will be IPv6 day when several big websites are going to test out their IPv6 capability. But the interesting thing is, even after that day, they're switching it back off. Exactly. And in fact, uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago and saying, okay, so 
the internet is running out of IPv4 IPs like maybe in October or November, and they're waiting until summer <laughs> of, of this year to do like the big test. It's like, okay. So, yes, we're in for some very interesting times. Yeah, if you go that. to if you go to IANA.org, you can find the uh, the page that has the address space registry and what blocks are allocated and what aren't. There's only five listed as unallocated right now. Those are the ones Steve has mentioned are going to be given to the five different regional Internet registries, the RIRs. Uh, and then once those are there, uh, different ones have different policies. But APNIC, the Asia-Pacific one, says that they think they've got about three to six months before they get down to the very end. And then they're just only going to use what else they haven't allocated as sort of transitional material to try to get people by until they, they move to IPv6. Uh, I, I've, we, we were talking to uh, Dane from, from SonicNet last week. He thinks we'll never get off IPv4. He thinks it's, we're just going to continue to, to dual use, and it, it will slowly trend towards being predominantly IPv6. He, do, he doesn't think we're going to have a, a place where suddenly the Internet breaks, but he also thinks we're, we're never going to get off the crack. There's still going to be IPv4 addresses used out there. Well, I, actually, I'm of exactly that opinion. Consider that there are 4 billion of them, and... While, while, yes, we're, there, there's a problem with, for example, with all the cell phone usage where every cell phone needs an IP address, um, IPv4 has, a, has a, a subset on an IPv6 address. So if you have, I think it's, it's all zeros and then two blocks of FFs and then an IPv4 address tucked in at the sort of the least significant bits the least significant 32 bits of the IPv6 128-bit address. So there, there is a, a formal spec for the way the entire IPv4 address space can always, for all time, we will always live in a small corner of the, of the formal IPv6 address space. So you could either use IPv4 to get the GRC. For example, I'm 4.79.142.200. So you could use that or you could use this this 0000FFFFFFFFF and then the same thing, 4.79.142.200, which is an IPv6 address that will take you to the same place. So so, so I, I'm in complete agreement. You know, I don't see a day ever ever where ipv4 stops being routed it'll it'll always exist we'll have it in our machines and the the, the sad thing is that this is going to be a mess uh we've got some questions in in today's q a that sort of highlight just what a problem uh we're probably going to be dealing with so it's I mean it's going to be a great topic fodder for this podcast as we as we move yeah. through wait our wait wait our way through this whole uh IPv6 and, and V4 conversion. Do you think anybody's going to come knocking at your door asking you to, to spare an IPv4 address? Would you, would you be able to hand some over if they did? Absolutely. And I would I'd be glad to do so. If Cogent ever says to me, hey, Steve, you know, uh, we were once really generous, but, uh, you know, how many do you really need? I, I, you know, I could get by with just, a, you know, very few here. I, I mean, I'm using all the ones that I've got at level three. I, I I don't I don't need more, but I couldn't survive with fewer. But 
yeah, I mean, I, I'd be happy to give Cogent back a block. Um, so I, I think know. that'll happen in a lot of corners, and it'll extend the life of IPv4 a lot longer than maybe it looks on paper right now. Because because you're not the only one who has who has who who received them in that time when people thought, ah, there's plenty. Take take a bunch, right? Take, take and four probably probably what'll happen is, I mean, it's it's obvi- It would be obvious to an ISP who was monitoring traffic, for example, that I'm using three or four IPs out of my block of 64. I mean, they would just simply see no traffic over those addresses through some length of time. And then I would, I would imagine if they then, you know, that, that, so it's very easy for them to see um, IP addresses that are not being used that would allow them then to come back to me and say, hey, you don't seem to be using these. Are we wrong or... You know, are do you just have fifty four computers that you haven't turned on? Right. You know, or, or 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 so forth. And I'd say, no, you're not wrong. I don't need them. And they'd say, well, we want them back. And I'd say, fine. Just you know? wait till the IPv six crunch comes. Once the <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. But I but I really think you're right. And of course, we've got Nat when we'll be talking yeah. about that in our in our Q and A today. All right, let's uh, let's move on to Google and Connecticut. Connecticut got a new attorney general. The old attorney general was really after Google over this Wi-Fi slurping. The new attorney general has settled. Well, yeah, I mentioned this once before. Um, we've sort of been following the whole Google Wi-Fi sniffing mistake uh, on the podcast from its very inception. And I did mention a couple of weeks ago that the the previous Connecticut AG um, was was. Uh, demanding that Google hand over all the data that they had captured during their inadvertent sniffing of of um, Wi-Fi in Connecticut. Google refused, and so it looked like they were going to roll up their sleeves and go to war. Um, what happened was they uh, Google settled essentially without needing to go to court uh, with the formal acknowledgement that Google had inadvertently collected information, including partial and complete email, and addresses of requested web pages. And so essentially, Google formally acknowledged what anyone looking at the raw data would have concluded. And, and I mean, this is entirely reasonable that Connecticut would be, would be satisfied with Google's disclosure and acknowledgement of that relative, rather than actually requiring the disclosure of the raw data itself. I mean, that it it made no sense to me at all when Connecticut was saying this is what they wanted, and so I was glad to say, I'm glad to see that you know Google said no, and then was able to get agreement with Connecticut. Who knows whether Connecticut's going to go any further with this? I'm I'm hoping this whole thing blows over because it was clearly just a configuration mistake on their data yeah. collection side, um, and so much more has been made of this then that needed to be made. More privacy violations have happened with governments insisting on looking at the data (laughs) than would have happened (laughs) if Google had just deleted it immediately. Right, right. All right. So in what I would have to call the Looney Tunes announcement of the week, uh, which many of uh of our listeners sent to me i got uh, a bunch of twitter input from from the people who following me on on twitter um computer world reported a story uh from the intel cto the chief technology officer of intel saying that they have that they intel have new technology 
on the burner coming along soon that will stop zero-day attacks in their tracks. From the chip side. Uh, yes, some sort. It's, it's not clear that it's only hardware. Okay. Um, and they did say that this was underway prior to their to Intel's acquisition of McAfee. So this is not something that they got from McAfee. They're they're claiming that that some new feature of their chips will prevent zero day attacks. Steve. Okay. This, I hate to say it, but this almost sounds too good to be true. <laughs> Gee, you think, Tom? Um, okay, I call it Looney Tunes because, okay, a zero-day attack, as our listeners know, is nothing but a, a vulnerability which is first discovered because it's found in the wild in you know, being exploited rather than found by a researcher and divulged to the people who who are being uh expo- potentially exploited or, or or who are maintaining the the whatever it is the software that is vulnerable that allows them to patch it before the problem is known you've so, got zero days to prepare for it in other words pre- precisely you you only learn you, you, everybody learns about it when they see it actually being exploited so, so I have to share with our listeners what Computer World wrote because it quotes this guy from Intel. So, so the, the article, January 26th, Computer World, says Intel's chief technology officer says the chip maker is developing a technology that will be a security game changer. Justin Ratner told Computer World on Tuesday that scientists at Intel are working on security technology that will stop all zero-day attacks. And while he would give few details about it, he said he hopes the new technology will be ready to be released this year. Quote, I think we have some real breakthrough ideas about changing the game in terms of malware, Ratner said. Continuing the quote, we're going to see a quantum jump in the ability of future devices, be they PCs, or phones or tablets or smart TVs to defend themselves against attacks. He noted that the technology won't be signature-based, like so much security is today. Signature-based malware detection is based on searching for known patterns within malicious code. The problem, though, is that zero-day or brand-new malware attacks are often successful because they have no known signatures to to guard against. Intel is, we're still reading from this Computer World article, Intel is working around this problem by not depending on signatures. And the technology will be hardware-based, though it's still unclear if it will have a software component. And then Ratner again was quoted, quote, right now, anti-malware depends on signatures. So if you haven't seen the attack before, it goes right past you unnoticed. Uh, says said Ratner, who called the technology radically different. Quote, we found a new approach that stops the most virulent attacks. It will stop zero-day scenarios. Even if we've never seen it, we can stop it dead in its tracks, unquote, he said. Uh-huh. So, so uh, th- what it sounds like to me, if I had to read the tea leaves, is that they've figured out a way to prevent against some attacks 
based on not having a signature. And that's not entirely new. People have claimed that before. But the the idea of coming out and saying they've solved zero-day vulnerabilities, that's just grabbing for press attention. They can't have done that. Well, yes, what they're what they're doing is they're they're saying if we take it literally, they're saying we've we're preventing there ever from being an attack which is not known, uh, which I mean is nutty, and uh, and we you know for example we've talked about the so-called um, execution disable flag which exists now in all Intel architectures, where, uh, for example, you, you can set this flag for the, the, the pages of memory which the stack lives in and the pages of memory which contain data. And the Intel chipset will refuse to execute code from those memory pages that have that bit set. So there we have hardware which is enforcing um, the and, and preventing stack overflow execution problems. Yet, we still have those problems. Yeah. I mean, so, yes, it's better than not having it, but it didn't, like, immediately solve buffer overrun problems. You know, we've got the bits, everyone's using them now, and we still have buffer overrun problems. So, I mean, I'm... I'm it on one hand... You're, you're sort of tempted to go, wow, Intel, you know, how could they be wrong? On the other hand, how could they be right? Yeah, it's not it's not like Intel is like Steorn, the perpetual motion machine company from Ireland, just making some ridiculously crazy claim that no one will ever believe. It's Intel. There's something behind this. It, it, they've just, they've notched the rhetoric up a couple of times, as indicated by using the word quantum to, to mean some sort of amazing advance it's just all puffery it's not you know i'm sure that they've got something that is pretty interesting and and hopefully will will advance security but you know more than anyone else it's an arms race well nothing is ever going to prevent everything and 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 frankly i mean with for a company as big as intel i'm sure the cto means well but he's he's you know he's a he's a c-letter executive who probably heard something interesting from the lab and doesn't really understand it himself so anyway yeah there's a difference between uh, yes sir this will stop zero day vulnerabilities and this will stop all zero day vulnerabilities or 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 we've come up with an interesting idea that may help us to improve the security of future chipsets when operating systems and all programmers behave correctly you know, <laughs> well, because you're not going to fix the user. I mean, even forgetting everything else, the biggest vulnerability is the person using the machine. Yeah, a lot of really smart people have been looking at this problem for a long time, and it still escapes us. That is, you know, the solution to it still escapes us. So yeah. it would be nice to have maybe some sort of hardware support that will that will give us a better handle. Uh, claiming that it stops zero day attacks is, is just nutty. You know, Calm, it makes ca- for great grasp. Yeah, great exactly. Grasp. It makes for good headlines. Call me when they have a patch for PebCAC. <laughs> All right, let's move on to actually, this is a little bit of a patch for PebCAC. Facebook uh, finally implementing the ability to have a secure connection, have an SSL connection. Well, I announced All it last week. Yes, I announced it in, in, secure, in our podcast last week. That morning, literally just a few hours before the podcast, 
Facebook's blog, their security blog, announced that they would allow users to optionally set the um, enforcement of SSL secure connections whenever they're using Facebook, whenever possible. However, at that time, my own Facebook account, which I use for testing purposes, did not yet show that checkbox. We saw a, a screenshot of it in the blog posting, so I knew what it was going to look like. And I did get some some Twitter feedback saying, hey, Steve, um, I saw your tweet about this, but I don't have it yet. So I did want to let everyone know that now a week later, I know you said you found it. Yep. I have found it on my Facebook page. So although I did just in the in the in the chat room chat before we began recording this podcast someone mentioned that their dad's facebook page still didn't have it i consider that anecdotal i bet that it's there now if as long as they go look for it in the right place so i did want to follow up and just say if any listeners excitedly went to their accounts um after hearing about this announcement last week and were disappointed not to find it Check again if you haven't. I'll bet it's there now. Turn that on. And, what, of course, what that does is it means that you have an SSL connection for all of your use of Facebook. I did see that some third-party applications running on Facebook may have a problem with this or and may not support it, which may be why it's not turned on by default. So if, so, if, if you turn it on and things break or don't work, um, first of all, I'd love to know about it. Um, grc.com slash feedback. Um, but uh, by all means, I know I'd immediately turn mine on. And it just means that when you're when you're roaming around, especially in unsecured open Wi-Fi hotspots, that you're not going to be subjected to abuses by fire sheep and its ilk. Yeah, go to account. Uh, and then uh, you want to get the uh, the account settings. And on that main settings page, account security, you should have it say set up secure browsing, parentheses, HTTPS, and login alerts. And then you click change for that, and then you're able to hit a checkbox that will allow you to do it. If you don't see that, you haven't got it yet. Oh, and do make sure you click save, which is right yes. underneath that checkbox. Absolutely. Because just turning the checkbox on doesn't do it. you gotta, you got to save that change. Very good point. All and, right. Uh, I have a, a, a little uh, – some feedback from a listener – uh, about Spinrite, uh, his his email handle is Lee Bing, uh, but his name is Leland, and he said he sent an email actually to to my a tech support guy who forwarded it to me saying GRC thanks. He said please let Steve know that it may not have been a miraculous story, but still extremely thankful for Spinrite. My wife runs her own business from home. Internet Explorer had been acting odd, some crashes lately. So she didn't think much of it when it crashed the other morning. She closed out and rebooted her computer like normal, except this time it wouldn't boot, not even into safe mode. It would try to start, but just automatically reboot again on each attempt. Not wanting to have to reinstall all her software applications and settings if I didn't have to, I spent over three hours getting a new install of Windows XP into a different partition hoping to then run a virus scan on the offending partition, assuming that that had caused the problem. But I couldn't read the drive at all. After many other attempted workarounds, I knew I had one good option remaining. I knew from all the stories shared on Security Now that there would come a day 
that I wished I had a copy of Spinrite on hand. I downloaded and purchased Spinrite from another computer. Oh, I hate to think if I hadn't had a second computer working in the house. This was about 10.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night by this time. Within five minutes of starting, Spinrite found a bad sector and started recovering the data from it. Within 15 minutes, it was done with that entire partition. Upon rebooting, I waited while Windows corrected some cross-linked files and such. But then it came right up into my wife's normal screen, and the machine has been running fine since then. Then he has this in caps. He says, please pass on to other listeners, all caps, exclamation point. Don't wait until the day comes that you wish you had spin right on hand. The day you, and he's saying this, I'm not. The day you need it, you may not be able to simply walk over to another computer and download it. Well, you probably have some friends who could help you out. Anyway, so he says, and stop wasting hours, avoid, and stop wasting hours avoiding using it or delay getting it. Had I started with Spinrite when I got home, I would have been in bed early instead of up late. Thanks again for the great software and great work on Security Now and GRC.com. Sincerely, Leland in Raytown, Missouri. So, it's, a, it's a good point. Uh, you. Have, your, have your tools downloaded and on, on a CD or a USB drive. It'll save you time. Well, it does. I, I, don't, I don't realistically expect people to buy Spinrite when they don't need it, but uh, it certainly, I mean, what, what we do see is that, is that having Spinrite on hand uh, and, more, more importantly, running it preemptively solves this kind of problem. Had, I mean, Leland ne- never had a chance to buy it. Had he owned it and run it, it would have fixed this problem prior to it getting to the point where that machine would no longer boot. So really, I think that's the, the, the great benefit. All right, this episode of Security Now brought to you also by MailRoute at MailRoute.info. If you would like to get rid of some spam and viruses as well, MailRoute is a, is a good option for a little extra protection. Uh, not you know, Spam is a vector for all kinds of nasty things uh, that can show up in your inbox. So if you just don't have them show up at all, uh, it'll help you protect yourself. MailRoute is a, a way to get rid of 99% of that junk. Uh, that's coming in and give you the 1% that's good stuff. I use it myself. It works. No false positives. Uh, Tom Johnson helped write the front bridge part of Microsoft Exchange. He sold it to Microsoft. It's now part of Exchange. Uh, And you can take advantage of his knowledge for free. Try it out. MailRoute.info. You just need to be able to edit an MX record or have somebody who hosts your website for you do that for you. Uh, And you can have all of your email routed through their servers. They do keep a vault if you're, you know, at first curious, like, well, I want to make sure it doesn't catch any good stuff i've never had it catch any good stuff uh but that vault is there if you want to look at it and then once uh if you like it you can keep it 10 percent off the lifetime of your account it's 30 dollars for a year as a single user or if you're a business which is really what it was built for two dollars per user per month check it out mailroute.info steve it's time for another listener feedback episode episode 110 of listener feedback uh, we've got nine questions today. First one comes from Ben in Atlanta, who doesn't under, doesn't quite understand whether XORing for encryption is good or bad. He says, I'm confused about your opinion on using XOR in encryption. I believe you previously said that it is bad, but in the episode on Bluetooth, you spoke briefly about RC4, and you said that it was fine to XOR with the RC4 stream. Could you please explain the issue? Okay, so this is confusing. Um, the... 
the I guess the the way to explain it from from a thousand feet is to say that XORing itself is a is a useful and valuable technique for for mixing a pseudo random stream with plain text in order to convert into cipher text. The idea being that if you and we did cover this in length in our crypto episodes. So a listener who, uh, who wants like more in-depth coverage of, of the topic can certainly go back and get a whole podcast on, on how this works. The idea is that you, if you, the, the XOR operation is essentially a conditional bit inversion. If you XOR zero and zero, you get zero. If you XOR zero and one, you get one. If you XOR one and zero, you get one. And if you XOR one and one, you get zero. So if you were to like write that down on a napkin and look at it, you would see that essentially if you consider one of those bits of input to be the plain text and the other bit of input to be to be a like a, a, a control bit, that control bit whether the control bit is one or zero determines whether the the data bit is inverted or not. So if the control bit is zero and you XOR anything with a zero, you get the same thing. If you XOR anything with a one, it inverts the data. So what's so cool is if you have a source of, of pseudo-random data, pseudo-random noise then almost counterintuitive though it is if you take regular plain text and you xor it with a pseudo random noise the pseudo random noise being sort of that that control bit it determines whether the bits are flipped in the plain text in a random or pseudo random fashion which performs as good an encryption as exists. That is, I mean, it's it's absolutely unbreakable given some limitations. And so I think this is where Ben is confused and where I have, where I've talked about XORing and the problems with, with XORing. Given that you absolutely never reuse that pseudo-random data, and that's crucial, and, and um, well, with, with, with that single caveat that you never reuse that pseudo-random data so that it's always different each time you perform an encryption against plain text, then you've got um, absolutely bulletproof encryption. The beauty of it is that when you take that encrypted data and do the same process again, XOR it again with the same pseudo-random data, since you'll be re-inverting the same bits in the encrypted data, which you inverted to create the encrypted data, it reverts it to plain text. So it's it's of tremendous value, for example, in, in wireless communications. We use it right now in WPA, which is a, you know, industrial strength, bulletproof um, encryption technology, which, which works great. It does require... Um, that it be handled properly. 
the, and, and it is the encryption that's used in Bluetooth. Bluetooth uses a pseudo-random bit stream and XORs the plain text to create the ciphertext. The, the weakness comes from if you, if you know what some of the, the encrypted text actually is in plain text. It's the so-called known plain text approach. If you know what that is, then you can XOR what you know with the ciphertext and and recover the the um, the pseudo random bit stream. So that allows you. Essentially, we have three things. We've got the the the, the bit stream, the plain text, and the resulting ciphertext. Any two of them will give you the third. So if you if you know what the plain text is for corresponding ciphertext. You can XOR those, and and what falls out is the pseudo-random bit stream. And that's why you don't want to reuse it, right? Because then it could be used to un- unlock anything else you've used with that stream. Exactly. So if exactly. So if you if you ever made the mistake of reusing that same stream, now that you've been able to recover it, knowing some of the data that was encrypted, you can you can recover other data which you don't know the value of, and so the whole thing falls apart. So while it's while it works and it's very useful, especially in any situation where you just don't have much computing power, you have to be very careful with the way it's applied. So I, I like it, but it, it again it has people have have continued over over time, people who have used XORing for encryption have made mistakes it ended up biting them and so it's you know essentially the world sort of moved away from it over to for example AES encryption which is far stronger and doesn't have um these same sorts of weaknesses so yes i like it but you just have to be very careful with the way you use it all right and you don't have to be as careful with AES um you have different you have to have to be careful in different ways with AES mm-hmm. it's not it's not as easy to mess up correct yeah Question number two comes from Chris Lincoln in Fremont, California, uh, who thinks he's found another mass cookie opt-out solution. Uh, I, I think you mentioned before about Firefox and Chrome having their own plans for opting outs. Uh, Chris says, Steve, on the recent Security Now podcast, you mentioned the script on aboutads.info. Didn't get you many options to opt out from online ads. For Firefox users, I recommend the Beef Taco add-on. Taco stands for Targeted Advertising Cookie Opt-Out. Cookies and tacos, and it's lunchtime. I'm getting hungry. Uh, It registers local cookies with the opt-out setting for over 100 online advertisers, and the cookies stay even when clearing the cookies within the browser. This makes reading SpyBot and S&D scans tedious, but it eliminates the majority of what comes up in my scans anyway. A lightweight taco known as Beef Taco is available at GitHub and Mozilla add-ons and sets 132 opt-out cookies. It is lightweight Completely non-intrusive, and you can see the full list of cookies at github.com slash jmhobbs with two Bs, J-M-H-O-B-B-S slash beef-taco. Note that it includes Google DoubleClick. Oh, take a look. Did you did you take a look at this? Um, I, I did, and um, it, I wasn't clear what I was seeing. There were some, there were some complaints about version 3 having become bloated and a real problem, and and people saying just stick with version two. Um, essentially, we talked last week about the about this um, 
uh, the aboutads.info page. And what, what, what's there is a script which allows advertisers who are participating to sort of log themselves in, uh, log in their participation with this website. And then you run a script there, JavaScript, which causes your browser to go to each of those advertisers asking to please receive an opt-out cookie from them. So my complaint was that while there was there was like, I don't know, 60 or 70 um, apparently present advertisers, when I tried that aboutads.info page, I was only able to opt out of maybe nine or ten. It said that it was unable to, you know, get the other ones to behave. Maybe they they they've registered, but they don't yet have handlers for this about ads.info page. So it didn't seem very effective. What? So I just wanted to bring uh, Chris's uh, mention of beef taco to our listeners' attention. What this is is different. This, of course, is um, it's something which is sort of pre-installing those those opt-out cookies for you. You don't have to visit those websites. It it could just comes along with um, uh, 132 sort of pre-made cookies, which it will just automatically put into Firefox's database when when you run it. So it's 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 sort of like a built-in blacklist for for opt-out advertisers. Uh, I'm Oh, and, and the reason he mentions that Google Double Click um, is um, uh, is also listed there uh, among those is that I, I did note that um, that Chrome was promoting a solution uh, also, which was which interestingly did not include their own uh, advertiser Double Click. And so he was just bringing up the point uh, this week that, well, this solution does include that. So this is sort of another approach. I wanted to let our listeners know about it. I'm I'm sort of annoyed at the idea of, you know, installing 132 cookies into my uh, browser. I'm using NoScript um, and um, an ad blocker and so forth to uh, not go to these places. But I could see that this could appeal to some people. Yeah, I, I think no script and ad blocker are probably your your best bet if you're really concerned about this. But you know, the FTC has called for uh, for some sort of opt out list, oh, and and yes. you know, we're, we're going to see more of these kinds of solutions being put out there. Right. Question number three comes from Lucas J in Maryland, uh, wondering about delaying IPv4 depletion. You had, you had said we were going to get back to this topic earlier in the show. Uh, Lucas asked, could ISPs, phone companies, et cetera, help delay IPv4 depletion through NAT, network address translation? I know I've heard before of ISPs putting their whole customer base behind one large NAT, giving them all one Internet-facing IP address. Couldn't we do this on a large scale? All Comcast customers on the East Coast could have one of a handful of IP addresses. All Verizon phones have one of a handful of IP addresses. Wouldn't this help, or are there more downsides than positive benefits? Well, yes. Um, first of all, it is NAT which has allowed the internet to survive as long as it has. You know, we, we've, I mean, I know that all of our listeners have NAT routers and these days probably have many more than one IP operating in their own home networks. So all of those IPs, all those machines behind their home NAT routers are seen 
publicly as a single IPv4 address. Now, it is the case that some ISPs have for years been running their users on, for example, 10 dot addresses. The 10 dot network has 16 million IPs behind it. So that's it's it's all the IPs beginning with 10 and then you've got three more bytes. So that's that's 24 bits of space that is 16 million different combinations. So an ISP that has up to 16 million customers could could put the, the entire customer base on a 10 dot on, on, on a non-routable 10 dot network behind NAT. You probably, well, you almost certainly cannot get by with one internet-facing IP address because what the way network address translation works is it essentially uses port numbers. Technically, it's called uh, network port address translation, although people shorten it to NAT. It actually uses port numbers to to disambiguate the 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 target IP for for traffic coming back. So it builds a there's a table in the NAT router which as outgoing traffic exits egresses from the ISP, it it translates the port number um, and puts it in a table so that when the traffic comes back, it's able to determine which IP behind the NAT router should receive the traffic. Well, that works well if you have a handful of machines. But remember, the port numbers are only 16 bits, and not all of them are, are available for translation. Generally, you use a subset of those. So, so if you've only got less than 16, you have, you have fewer than 16 bits of port number, there's no way to, to map that into as many as 24 bits of possible IP addresses behind the NAT router. What that means is you, you simply need many more than one Internet-facing IP address, but still, this is not a, an intractable problem. I don't know if ISPs are going to do this, but it is, it, I mean, NAT has kept us going as long as we have. Um, some ISPs do put their, uh, their, their customers behind NAT already, and it's certainly possible that more could in the future. The, the, the problem with doing this, second part of Lucas's question was, you know, are there downsides? The problem is that we use NAT, we home users use it because it gives us very good firewall, stateful firewall-like protection. Unsolicited incoming traffic has nowhere to go because it's the outgoing traffic that creates the mapping for the traffic to return to the proper computer, which, which inherently gives us firewall-like capabilities. But many customers deliberately create static mappings through their NAT router if they want to run some sort of server, if they deliberately want to make services available, their own home network services available on the Internet, then they're able to do so. Um, so um, in some cases, they will use um, a feature of the NAT that does route unsolicited traffic over to a given IP address, over to a, a specific machine. In, a, in another case, 
they'll use static port mapping. The problem is you lose that ability if you're behind an ISP NAT because the ISP controls a NAT router. You have no control over the NAT router. So you would, you'd be on a private IP address and you'd have no way ever of reaching machines in your home network from out on the Internet because unsolicited incoming traffic would be dropped by your ISP. So there, there really is a downside to this. I've long wondered whether sort of low-end consumer Internet users might ultimately lose the ability to serve on the Internet. That is, they, they, would, be, they would be clients of the Internet, but inherently not servers. That would be a sad day, but uh, we're going to have an interesting year here, and we'll have to see how it develops. It's another creative it's way for ISPs happen. to charge you. Uh, in other words, if you're the kind of person who just wants to passively surf and send email, you sign up for the for the NAT uh, account. But if you've got UPnP in your Xbox or you want to do some you know remote computing, well, you got to sign up for the extra tier, right? Yeah. And NAT was supposed to protect us from them charging us these sorts of things. Question number four, Stephen in Baltimore uh, has a question about home networking. He says, my question is about WPA passwords and how it salts the password with the SSID. Right now I'm using one of your super long crazy passwords and it's no fun to type with on-screen keyboards like on the Wii or the Nintendo DS. I, I know that pain, man. I'm with you, Stephen. I'm wondering if I can use one of the passwords generated from your site as the SSID instead of the password and a smaller password, say like 20 characters, would that offer any protection with the smaller password? Well, that is a brilliant idea. That's clever, I thought huh? that uh, very clever. And then you uh, don't broadcast the SSID? Is that, is that right, part of this? Right. So, so um, we, we, we talked about the way the, the WPA functions in the way it converts your password that you provide into the the key which is used by the crypto what happens is it's it, it it these guys who did wpa knew their security very well much more so than the people who did the original wep wi-fi encryption that was so badly broken they take your password and the ssid and merge them together and then hash them using SHA-1 4,096 times. They do it 4,096 times, not because that makes it more secure, but because it, it makes it much more difficult to brute force. That is, you take the raw password, mix it with the SSID, and then there's a computational burden to hash that 4,096 times rather than just, for example, hashing it once. So anyone who was trying to, to do brute force attack would be forced to do the same 4,096 re repetitive hashes in order to get the key at the other end that they could then attempt to apply to your encrypted stream to see whether it decrypted. So that's how the system works. What, what Steve is asking is, hey, I've got a fancy password and a simple SSID, and those are being mixed together and then hashed. Why don't I reverse it and use 
a simple password and a wacky SSID because they're being mixed together and then hashed. Wouldn't that give me the same? It's a cool and clever idea. The problem is that just turning off the SSID broadcast does not remove the SSID from the packet stream. Mm-hmm. Anyone sniffing your Wi-Fi traffic will will be able to capture your network's SSID. Not every packet contains it, but various management packets do. And so if they had a if they were doing a sniff, which they would be anyway, in order to determine whether they were able to crack this, they would get the SSID. So the fact that you've made it really long and gnarly won't help you um, enhance the security. And you'd still, the only real strength you have is, unfortunately, from your password strength. On the other hand, 20 really bizarre random characters, you know, it doesn't have to be 64. 64, I would argue, especially if you're using one of my crazy passwords from, you know, grc.com slash passwords, which is just absolutely, you know, high entropy gibberish, 20 is still, you know, a lot to go through brute forcing. Most people are going to use a dictionary attack. They're, they're going to, you know, try something. But the fact that the hash requires this 4,096 uh, iterations in order to generate the key, that creates enough of a computational overhead that, uh, you know, I'm not saying 20 characters is enough. It depends upon how how um, determined you are to have security. Maybe make it forty, but still, that's that's an awful lot of security. Yeah, and and it's and those on screen keyboards are really the problem. It's <laughs> it's it's not your password. It's the fact that those on screen keyboards are so darn hard to use. Uh, in the end, there because if you want to stay secure, it's you know you only have to put it in once. It's not like you're putting it in every time you turn on the the Wii or something like that. Question number five, Joel Oliver in Pittston, Pennsylvania, uh, says, Hi, Steve. Wanted to chime into the fact that Trim is also supported in Linux as long as the distribution is running kernel 2.6.33 or later. All that needs to be done is to add discard to the drives option in the etc slash fs tab file. Also, FreeBSD 8.2 and up supports Trim in the UFS file systems. Thanks for the great podcast. Okay, so I misspoke, everybody. And yes, um, I, I, we were discussing Trim last week, and I said that the only operating system that supports it was Windows 7. <laughs> uh, never I, say never, huh? Uh, never well, say only. I, I know that Linux supports it. I just, I, I was only, you know, in my mindset, I was thinking about, unfortunately, and I apologize, Linux people, I was thinking about, you know, Microsoft and Apple. Yeah, uh, you know PCs and Macs, and so of those operating systems, only Windows Seven supports Trim. Um, it absolutely is the case that that the Linux and some of the um, BSD OSs support it as well. So I wanted to, I, I read, I, I you know I, I chose Joel's note, but I received about fifty different pieces of email from people saying, uh, "Steve, I'm using it on Linux," and yeah. it's like, "Okay, yeah." So I wanted to acknowledge everybody who wrote to me to thank you and to say, "Yes, everyone is right. Uh, it, trim support does exist outside of the, the small—well, not small, but the the, the Windows Seven universe." I, I usually do this with Opera, so I feel your pain, and then I get yeah. the fifty thing people saying, "You forgot Opera does this." 
Question number six. Russell Spittler in San Mateo doubts the usefulness of software-based tokens. He says in Listener Feedback 109, you discuss and encourage a software-based alternative to the common one-time user, one-time use hardware authentication tokens. This really rubbed me the wrong way. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but given my understanding of the authentication tokens, a software solution invalidates most of the security they provide. The one-time use tokens work on three inputs, the current time, a crypto algorithm, and a shared secret between the token and the authenticating server in the back end. While you can be reasonably assured that the shared secret found in a tamper-proof hardware token cannot be compromised without your knowledge, the same is far from true with a software-based solution. By embedding the shared secret in a software solution, you're compromising the basic premise of the token. Having worked for a number of years in software security in particular, it is certainly a tractable problem to extract the secret from the software. Use of software-based one-time use password generators is far from the same level of security as a hardware token. Okay. You did that in one breath, too. That was very impressive. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, was, I was assuming Russell had also written it in one breath. I, I, I think he did. Uh, he was upset with me. Um, okay. So he says... Please correct me if I'm wrong, but given my understanding of the authentication tokens, a software solution invalidates most of the security they provide. Okay, Russell, I think you're wrong. Um, but I also think you have a point. First of all, what I was referring to was that I had discovered that the VeriSign VIP service was now offering a uh, a... BlackBerry applet, and there's also one for iPhone, and I'm not sure about Android. I There either is or there will soon be, but that would be in addition to either the the one-time use credit card, the, the one-time password credit card, or the, the often discussed football, which is a time-based um, system. So, so I'm 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 I have a web page that wants me to log in, say I'm using PayPal or eBay, and I I have to use my BlackBerry in order to which is running software which knows what time it is and is generating a six character token from that. So if if I was running software that was running on the PC, in the PC, where it's inherently on the same platform, in the same world, where malware, you know, is, it might be crawling around, where some scripting on the page that I've, that I've gone might have some way of getting loose and, and like, figuring out what my software key is. I mean, I, I, I can theoretically understand what Russell means, but... I've got a an entirely separate device, physically separate, operating different operating system, different architecture. I don't see any way for for software that I'm logging into a site with to somehow leap across space into my BlackBerry. Now, okay, I mean, playing devil's advocate, if I if my BlackBerry were infected, then I couldn't trust the the integrity of this VIP system. That is, the BlackBerry would have to be infected. It would have to be communicating then with some site 
that knows I'm going to be logging in with my BlackBerry. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I guess my my point is that it seems a real stretch. You know, is a is a software based solution which is using a telephone. You know, a smartphone has the hardware platform. Is that fundamentally less secure than a hardware token? Yes, I, I would agree it is. However, what we're accomplishing with with using a one a a, a time based, always changing token is dramatically greater security than if we don't have it. So my feeling is. It it might be theoretically somewhat less secure, but vastly more secure than not using it at all. So, and it cost nothing. It was free. You know, it was, I, was, I added it as an app to my BlackBerry. So, right. you know, I mean, uh, to, to me, it's a huge win, one that I'm, I'm happy to encourage our listeners to use because uh, the, 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 the cost is negligible and the benefits far outweigh um, essentially, uh, not using it or even having it compromised, which would be the same as not having it at all. So, you know, you don't lose anything and all you have is a lot to gain. All right. I'm going to move us along so we can get our last three questions in here before we have to wrap. Eric in San Jose, uh, says, hi, Steve, love the show. Longtime listener. So my broadband finally got upgraded to work. It's fast, but after speed tests, I found that at home, my D-Link DFL200 firewall router could only support 15 megabits per second down and 3.5 up while also running a site-to-site VPN. So I decided to set up an Astaro security gateway at home, free license, to test the ASG's performance. With a very old Dell box, I got 95 megabits per second down with Comcast, only 3.5 up, so uploads are throttled by my ISP. Well, it took a little bit of thinking, and I decided to upgrade the NICs in the ASG to gigabit cards. I am now getting 392.90 megabits per second down on my fastest run, still only 3.5 up. I thought other home users might be interested in upgrading to an ASG after hearing this. Please, however, don't be a bandwidth hog in my neighborhood. So I thought this was a great post for a couple reasons. Um, I, it is absolutely the case that these little plastic box $49 Soho consumer routers are built with the least expensive technology possible. You know, they get the job done, but it is very easy to overload them. For whatever reason, many of the things that I've been doing in the last year when I was working with the DNS benchmark and the um, the spoofability test one of the things I had to li- deliberately do was throttle this, the, the spoofability test at GRC and the DNS benchmark specifically so as not to overload these little consumer routers. So I've bumped up against their, their very significant performance and, and, and packet processing limitations myself a lot. So, so the first part of this is what Eric did was he said, hey – um, I think I should be getting better performance than I'm seeing with my, in this case, this was a D-Link DFL 200 firewall router. So he switched to a, a, an old PC, a Dell PC, on which he loaded the Astaro Security Gateway. And lo and behold, his download performance went from 15 megabits to 95, meaning that 
he, that that little D-Link router was the choke point for him. And when he when when he switched to a PC, which is you know a much I mean vastly more capable computer than what goes in one of those little blue plastic boxes, he saw a huge jump in downloading performance. Then, even though he wasn't he was at ninety five megabits, okay, so ninety five megabits is very close to a hundred megabits, which was the limit of his his networking cards. So. He did the next thing, which was to switch from 100 megabit cards to a gigabit card. And not surprisingly, it, w- it turned out that it was the, the network interface card that, that the 100 megabit card was, bl- was the thing that was blocking him at 95, which actually is pretty good performance on, on, to get on a 100 megabit card. So he went to a gigabit card. Now he's at 392 megabits. So... A couple of really good lessons, and one is to to consider whether your little cheap, cheesy, you know, forty dollar blue router might be causing you to lose performance. Which getting any random old machine and setting it up as a network gateway using a Starro security gateway might give you much better performance. Um, it's definitely something to think about. Very clever, very very brilliant, and very frugal. Yeah. Very, very green reusing. <laughs> Question number eight comes from Nick Jackson in Austin, Texas, says, as I was listening to the latest podcast about browser fuzzing, that's number 285, your discussion of IE, Firefox, and Chrome's different approaches to implementing a do not track system reminded me of one of my favorite episodes and one of the most unnerving, number 264, side channel privacy leakage. You endorsed Firefox's approach to do not track, namely adding an HTTP header, and that certainly makes sense as a forward-looking measure to ensure that web advertisers are technologically capable of honoring these requests in the hopeful event that legislation makes this mandatory. I'm not particularly a fan of IE. However, from your description, it sounds like Microsoft's tracking protection list, TPL, approach works essentially like a blacklist for stopping the browser from visiting, running code, or accepting cookies from certain sites. So my thought was, doesn't Microsoft's approach work better as a deterrent to side-channel privacy leakage. In other words, under Firefox's approach, recalcitrant web advertisers may nominally support do not track headers by not using tracking cookies, but nevertheless continue to profile and uniquely identify you through a variety of other unique facets of your machine. IE's TPL blacklist, it sounds like, would simply prevent connections from being made to these profiling companies at all, stopping the side-channel privacy leakage problem at its source by never allowing you to share potentially uniquely identifying information to third-party servers. In fact, I would guess that the best combination would be both HTTP headers and a blacklist, which many people, including myself, get by using NoScript and Adblock+. Plus. Do you think Microsoft is on to something unique here that Mozilla and Google aren't trying? Well, I thought that was a great question, and I, I included it here because I wanted to... We, we sort of covered this point um, um, in episode 265 when we talked about this, but I did want to draw our listeners' attention back to the fact that, as Nick says, Microsoft's TPL, the Tracking Protection List Approach, from what we, what little we've seen and read about it, this is going to be in IE9. Um, it's from from what we've, what Microsoft has said is that any sites whose URLs match the pattern matching of a TPL list 
will be prevented from exactly as Nick says ever going. So it's 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 exactly as he says the the notion of essentially creating a blacklist. Many you know many users now, for example, used a a, a use a hosts file which they'll get from the internet and and maintain it. The hosts file contains a a, a huge list of typically advertiser domain names which they um, they use to short circuit DNS lookups. Just for example, turning into one twenty seven zero zero one, which is your own local IP, which prevents your browser from ever successfully going out to one of those advertisers. This is as sort of more is very much the same in that it similarly would protect. It, it would allow IE to to manage which sites it was allowed to go to and which it wasn't, um, and and. And essentially, I don't know that I would describe this really as side channel leakage, but he's, he is right that depending upon the way the legislation is written, if if they if the advertisers still got you, even though you had a header saying "Do not track me," then you know you're still making contact with a site that you may rather not have any contact with. I'm hoping that this TPL approach does make it into IE. If this becomes a standard, then I would imagine that Firefox and, and Chrome and the others would pick up on this approach because it is more aggressive than what they're, what they're doing. But if it's sort of managed for us by websites that, that we visit saying, well, you know, you have to, you have to be able to visit the, our advertisers in order for us to provide you with valid content, please click this list in order to add an exception to the TPL if you agree to that then that gives users a lot of control. I can see it potentially gets confusing. Um, we're going to have to see how it all washes out. But I did want to you know, sort of reiterate that it's, it's something hopeful from IE. And because it's so good, if it ends up taking off, we may see other browsers doing it too. And our final question uh, comes from James Daldry in Raleigh, North Carolina, and and we're back to IPv6. He says he uses a Linksys WRT54GL router. I used to have one of those routers, uh, which is upgradable to IPv6 by changing to the Tomato firmware. My problem is that every article I read extols the virtues of hanging your system's bare IP stack out on the public Internet, which, of course, you could do since there will be plenty of IPs available under V6, but no one mentions the security benefits of NAT. So, will my router stop natting under V6, and will I have to become a sysadmin for real, or will the inside of my network remain the same with 192.168 IPs? Uh, I'd hate to have to toss my Grace radio because it won't work with V6. I think this is a point of confusion for a lot of people with IPv6. Because it has so many addresses, it doesn't need nor does it use net. There's some other security considerations here. Well, yes, and... First of all, everything is a confusion with, with yeah. for everyone with IPv6. And he makes he raises a really good point in his posting. He says, you know, he's got an appliance, this Grace Radio, that doesn't support IPv6. Well, it probably never will. And there's all kinds of, st of stuff that, you know, like Internet streaming radios and Roku boxes. And, I mean, you know, things that are state-of-the-art you may be able to upgrade them and get newer firmware for them. But, you know, we've got, for example, I've got TiVos. Um, uh, uh, all of my TiVos are IPv4, and they're using old hacked kernels. They're never, ever going to get upgraded. I know that. So 
I want to continue to have them on the Internet to get their directory information. And so what happens with V6? Also, is it clear to us that ISPs are going to say, gee, how many IPv6 addresses would you like? You know, the idea of not using NAT means that you would have to say to your ISP, gee, um, I'd like 25 IPv6 addresses. Well, Joe, is the, is the ISP going to start charging you per IP? You know, we've been there with IPv4, and the reason we're all hiding behind a NAT router is we want to look like we're just one computer. And that's all we, I mean, the, the ISP knows no, no one is one computer anymore, but it, it works for them because they only have to give us one IP so it conserves their IP space. That's not going to be, that's not going to be a problem under IPv6. But then the question is, you know, do we get blocks? Do individual end users get blocks of IPv6 addresses? And if we do, what happens to our old IPv4 hardware? So great questions. I don't have any answers yet, but it's going to be a really interesting next couple of years. Can, can you make an IPv6 router that then does does do NAT in IPv4 using Absolutely. the tunneling? So Absolutely. there there you go. I mean, hopefully somebody comes up with, with a few products like that. It sort of reminds me of the digital TV transition. Yeah. You're going to have to get or... boxes for your old IPv4 <laughs> stuff to convert them. Exactly. Yeah. All right, uh, Steve, it's great to be back on Security Now with you. I really enjoy doing the show with you. Leo is out, everybody, uh, on a cruise for the next two weeks, so I'll be sitting in on Security Now for the next couple weeks. Yep, great. Don't forget to uh, check out grc.com. You can find lots of excellent security information and products there, uh, as well as uh, where do you find the transcripts uh, there as well, right? Yep, grc.com slash sn for Security Now will take you to a page with all of the past podcasts where you can get the, the lower bandwidth version of Security Now. I, I recompress it at 16 kilobits and serve it myself for, for people who like the smaller quarter size file. Um, you know, the uh, Twit website and the podcast downloads 64 kbits. Um, and then we've got Elaine who does a transcript in uh, three different text formats for anybody who wants to read along. That compressed version is going to be handy for Canadians now with the new CRTC ruling. They uh-huh. don't, they've got all those 25 megabyte caps coming next month. So oh boy. good to know. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Talk to you then, Tom. Bye. Security Now.